Hello and welcome to this week's BWB Extra, where we continue our conversation with Amy Poon, founder at Poon's London. We dive deeper into discussing Amy's life growing up in the Chinese restaurant business, her dad's migration to the UK, to him becoming a Michelin-style chef and building the original Poon's restaurant empire, and what Amy has planned for the resurrection of Poon's London and her passion for good quality soya sauce. Welcome to The Family Food Affair. I first had the idea of making Poon sauces sort of in the late 90s when I was working in London for an ad agency. Um, and I got quite upset with them. So I sort of quit in a peak of you know, petulance and foolishness, perhaps, um, and stormed off and said, It's not like you. It doesn't sound it doesn't at sound all. like me at all. Um, and I said, I'm going to go make sauce. And I realized I had about £23 in the bank and rent to pay. So that didn't happen. So it has, you know, thinking back, actually, a friend of mine reminded me of it and he sent me um, some really, really initial sort of work I'd done on it, proposals and sort of, you know, ideas behind it. and cutouts from newspapers of soy sauces and stuff. I mean, the Ch- I'm not, you know, I've got all sorts of Chinese restaurants in London and I've never noticed the soy sauce really taste any, or in, or in Japanese. I mean, maybe it's slightly nicer here or there, but how do you know, how did you know how to make this? I mean, there's two questions in there. One, do any Chinese restaurants serve very high quality soy sauce? Is that is that something that happens here? It's, it is a condiment, right? So you don't necessarily, I mean, a lot of dim sum restaurants, you know, will have it on the table because you want, you know, I, I guess it's sort of market-driven, I suppose. I mean, I, see, I go to so many restaurants with friends and they kind of ask for soy sauce and they literally douse their white rice with yeah. soy sauce and you slightly cringe and you kind of go, you know what, that's like going to an Italian restaurant saying, you know, oh, yeah, ketchup, please, and going all over your, you know, spaghetti. Well, who, that's de- that, that's how it's viewed by, what, Chinese people? Or? Yeah, you just don't do it. Yeah. It's not a done thing. Because the soy sauce, for the most part, is used in the cooking, so you don't actually see it. Yeah. Unless there's a very specific dish that requires soy sauce for dipping. Yeah, yeah. But how do you know what good soy sauce is like? This was your family business originally or something? No, it? you, it's taste, right? I mean, I grew up eating. Yeah. I mean, I'm a glutton and, and and it's my greatest passion. And I I love food. I love like tasting things. And I cook. And, you know, my Just so I mean, a glutton, food. I think I might be a glutton. I like everything. I mean, I even like school food. So, but I think you're, you're, you, you love food, but you like the good stuff, maybe. Yes. The stuff yeah. you well, I made, I can't remember what it was, aubergine thing you made when I came to your house and it was the best thing I'd ever, I'd That's eaten in some time. It yeah, was a bit of soy delightful. sauce, a bit of chili, a bit it's of a yeah, special yeah, soy sauce. Ginger. It was a really good. Yeah. yeah, it's so it's 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 just to do with training your taste buds, isn't it? Like anything, it's a muscle. It's interesting uh, how countries get used to certain things, and they generally get quite fixed on them. But you make some good examples of us sort of learning about olive oil and us, you know, learning about these things. So I can imagine a revolution in sort of soy sauce and like you know, if it really is night and day, and you try it and you're like, Christ, I need that one now, you know. But then I'm confused that you're saying. It's a condiment, so you shouldn't really use it on your rice. You know, this, to me, there's nothing nicer than like, you know, well, actually, I like it when it's like Japanese sticky rice and then just like a little well, that, bit of soy. Well, again, that's a different thing. That's what you're supposed to do. But actually, when you're eating sushi, you're not supposed to dip the rice in the soy sauce. You're supposed to tip your sushi upside down and dip the fish in. Oh, but hang on. Gosh, that's I, I love Japan. I love Japan no, no, and I've been many really, times, but there's so many it, rules. You know, if you put the rice the in rice falls off the bottom. Yeah, it, it yeah. just um, it absorbs too much liquid yeah. and then it's just too salty and then it all disintegrates. Because mm-hmm. it's been sort of stuck together, right? But Japan, I mean, I love Japan, but it has so many rules. I mean, the Japanese restaurant near me in Wilston Green, which is, it's changed hands now. It's still very good, but it used to be, uh, it used to be considered one of the best in London. Oh my God, they were strict. I mean, they were, were they? Hilar- oh my God, she was hilarious. She was scary, the lady 
lady. She's retired now. If you asked for the wrong thing, it was just like, um, you know, you'd ask the, the other girl, like, you know, not the boss. You say, oh, could you get me, you know, some wasabi or something? I just can't do that. I'm sorry. Well, you get annoyed. There's a lot of there's a there's a lot of ways of. You must engage with a very posh restaurant. It wasn't posh. They were just very Japanese. Do you know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. in like they serve some of the weirder dishes. But let's try and understand this more. Okay, so you you serve those two things. They go together as well. I assume. Do you sell them as a sort of package? Oh, the, 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 the ones and the sauces. Yeah, we do get quite a lot of people that order both. We don't yet do nationwide delivery on the one times, but we will do in a couple of weeks. Why do you think the guy who runs this place is a genius? You Which said place? You're, you, you said that you're in a light kitchen. Oh, yeah, no, Charles, well, he's, he's just young and sort of, you know, funky and energetic and cool and has got great ideas and there's, you know, he's dreamt this whole thing up. I don't know where he had the idea from. He, I think he he, um, he did talk about going to the States and seeing all this. And, of course, he worked in food before he did worked in um, uh, one of those food market um, places, I think Pop Brixton or something. And so he saw the need for, you know, emerging food businesses to to find production space. Right. And somewhere where you can all bounce off each other and talk to each other, yeah. presumably. I mean, it's really lovely. There's a, there, there are a couple of, you know, quite established brands um, in there who don't actually do any production at all, but they just wanted to be around food. And it's a really nice community. So, you know, once a month, um, one of the members, you know, cooks lunch for everybody. So all sort of 80 of us. It's 80 of you there, are but there? I think there are about 80 businesses there. And yeah. it's, you know, come and go as you wish sort of thing. And, and you know, it's, um, it's relatively That's central. That's a lot of one-tons. That's a lot of one time. So if I go, if you go down to New Covent Garden, then can you need to be booked in? I can, you, I've really got to order from you. This is not sort of, yeah, it's, it's not. We don't have a shop front. Did you make a conscious decision not to have a shop? Well, after the pop-up, which you will yeah, remember, um, which was a lot of work, but which was very popular and, you know, gave us, I suppose, the reason, the confidence to, to you know, go to do this properly. We struggled really hard, you know, a lot to find a, a, a suitable site. Mm, I remember. And it just sort of, you know, took forever. You know, you've got to remember this is back in the day. This is like, how many years ago? It was a number so of years ago. It was just after 2018. So we, it, was, it was late in 2018 that we started looking for a site. But this is a time where, like, this was a time in London where any site had a massive premium on it. Yeah. And you couldn't, like, get anything decent without paying a huge chunk of cash up front. What's the aspiration now, then? Do you need to open multiple kitchens or...? No, um, I'm a bit torn, you know. Part of me still wants to open a restaurant, although that's a really antisocial thing to do from a personal perspective. You know? yeah. I mean, I grew up yes. in the restaurant business. You know? Yes, you're going to have to tell us about that in a minute. Yeah, so I grew up in the restaurant business and I swore I would never, ever, ever get involved, you know. Your parents had a restaurant. Yeah, so my father was the first... Uh, Chinese chef to have a Michelin star. Wow. And the restaurant that they, went, that they opened in Covent Garden, which is where the great and the good went and where he got his the star. The old Covent Garden. The old, old Covent, Covent Garden. Garden. King Street. So, so actually it is now a Mul- no, Burberry store. Mm-hmm. I need to get you together with one of my best friends. Her father had the first Michelin star for an Indian restaurant. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. You, you, could, you could discuss how you're never going to own from a restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so this was in 1980 that he was awarded a star. They, they opened the restaurant in 76. And so I grew up in that business and they had a restaurant in Switzerland in Geneva and he gave the original restaurant was in Lyle Street to my uncle who then subsequently opened others so the perception from the outside was that we were this little sort of mini you know restaurant empire Chinese restaurant empire um, Did, reality, was he we from a restaurant background your parents or my father had trained in Hong Kong as a chef and he had trained with the Swiss Patissier and my grandparents had restaurants and well actually there is quite a well, lot in Switzerland he was in Hong Kong then he went to Switzerland. no no he was in Hong Kong he trained at the Patissier in Switzerland and um, actually, there is quite a long sort of culinary history 
Right, and there's a great, 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 great grandfather somewhere. One more. Some greats. Um, some greats. Um, who was, you know, a chef to the emperor, but, you know, he probably had thousands of chefs, right? Um, yeah. And there's this really wonderful, wonderful story that's another great, great, great on my granny's side, um, but my channel granny, um, who effectively invented the stock cube. Ooh. Which is a very, it's a very cool story, actually. So, so he was a chef to a provincial governor. And they used to have to travel to the capital to sit in their provincial governor exams of some sort. And uh, you would travel with your entourage because there wasn't going to be, you know, a hotel on the way. Um, and he thought, well, I can't take live stock with me and, and slaughter them en route to make stock because there isn't time. I've tried. I've tried, but, you know, there's not time. And um, so, and he goes, I can't take vats of stock with me because it will, you know, sour. So... Um, he devised something. He made some very concentrated stock and he dipped little linen towels in it and dried them in the sun. And then he re-dipped them and dried them in the sun. And he traveled. He kept doing that this, until they were sort yeah, of solid. Heavily impregnated yeah. with this, this stock. And he had this case of them and he traveled this case and, and wherever they stopped and he had to cook, he would, you know, rehydrate one of these in a pot of boiling water and have instant sort of stock. Oh, wow. Unfortunately, they're not made of linen anymore, but maybe, you know. You don't have to fish the towel out, out of the... the yeah. but it's not very different from the idea of a tea bag, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. I know the um, they invented... Uh, I think the tin was invented and and, and uh, for Napoleon when he was trying to feed his, his troops, you know. He had to find mm-hmm. a way that... How can I... Well, it's like the sandwich, right? It's the sandwich for the troops, was it? Well, it's the Earl of Sandwich. Yeah, but Earl of Sandwich, did said, he have an army? Get me... Yes, he was a general and he said he was on the move, didn't have time to sit down and have lunch and so said give me my piece of meat between two pieces of bread bingo he can't have invented it yes no but back then that it was so revolutionary Pret owe him a great debt and probably some commission i just feel back then they were slicing bread weren't they they must have and then if you're slicing nobody had just thought oh come on i don't buy it wham something between two bits of course they did once they slice it they'd be like i'm sorry but that's why we call it the sandwich Right. I know that's why we call it the sandwich, but I've always slightly disputed. It's like, you know, it's probably a load inventing of sitting down. But there are down. so it's many like, stories like that, yeah, actually, yeah, you know. I mean, right. there's, there's, there's an Austrian dish, Kaiserschmarrn, German, I didn't know. It's like Pavlova, they both claim heritage. I well, think. you know the other one, the uh, hamburger. There's two places in New York that hotly contest who invented a hamburger. No, I might be meaning the hot dog, but there's two places. Well, I think it might be the hamburger. Anyway, whatever, it doesn't matter. The point is everyone's arguing about everything. <laughs> your your great-great-great-great-great-grandfather invented the stock cube. That's what's important right That's what's here. important. Yeah. And now, a quick word from our sponsor. Ori Clark got its start back in 1935. And while the world has changed a bit, it's more than just survived. From complying with the FCA and all things financy, they can also speak fluently in the language of legalese. Ori Clark was born and raised right here in the UK And now for 20 years they've been helping others get set up and on their way Ori Clark's door's always open and happy to provide Straight talking financial and legal advice since 1935 Big shout out to Sean Veer Singh for a stellar jingle You can find him at Sean Veer Singh Music on Instagram And at this point, let me quickly remind you to give us a nice review, please, on Apple Podcast or follow us on Spotify so you'll never miss an episode. Now back to the chat. What was it like growing up in a 
you know, running around a Michelin star restaurant? Um, I think when I got a bit older as a teenager, it was quite a glamorous thing to have. You know, I was definitely a friend with benefits, right? Yeah. Yeah, my friends would come and you know come to London. The ones who were living in the country, whatever. Different definition of friends with benefits. Yeah, well, and, probably. Um, and you know, I'd say, "Well, come for lunch," and say, "We'd sit down." And you know, you're 13 years old, right? So, how yeah. often do you go to a restaurant for lunch? Yeah. And I'd order food, and it would all come and would be served, and and they would be like, "Oh my god, this is amazing!" Um, and then, like, yeah, that's what I did the whole time. But sometimes I just do it by myself. And then you went around to someone else's house and their mum couldn't cook. And then that must have been awkward, you know. And was there lots of kind of glamorous people coming and going through the restaurant? We did. I remember when I was about nine, Barbara Streisand came in one evening. And um, and I'd been to a birthday party. And I was sent along to her table, you know, to get her to sign the autograph book. And, and she was out very lovely. She didn't look at me at all. I didn't, you know. And she kind of signed without looking at the book, saying, you're wearing a very lovely dress. And just signed it. It's like, you know. <laughs> she was probably on something. I mean, you know, on 20 different tranquilizers. And I do remember there was an incident where there was some sort of altercation. She was with, I presume, her boyfriend. And, uh, and then she had to be taken out the back entrance because there were paparazzi outside and stuff. And, and Mick Jagger and Jerry Hall came and, there is a wonderful photograph of James Galway, the flautist, yeah. playing his flute in the kitchen. Oh, wow. But you, you've, you've got into a business which isn't a restaurant per se. It's, it's the engine room of a restaurant. So it's kind of like the, maybe the fun bit without the annoying bit, maybe. I don't know. Customers. I are... kind of feel like I've got it the other way around. Actually. Okay, I'm you've got the annoying, annoying bit without the fun I, bit. Because I love people. I like yeah. people. I like I chatting like and I like the buzz. And when you... You know, I, I say often, it's like, you know, I haven't found a, a cure for cancer and I haven't ended, you know, child trafficking. But if but you try my soy sauce. <laughs> <laughs> no, but when you cook somebody a meal and you have a room full of people eating and drinking and have a good time, you think, well, you know, for a little bit, I've given you some joy. Yeah. And that's yeah. quite special. Yeah. Um, and I love feeding people. I love it. I think people, I think it is most sincere. I mean, I have this hashtag, edible love which was coined actually by my, my nephew years ago when I used to send him food parcels and I used, you know, he started university. And, um, and I joked and I said, oh my God, you know, do your friends just think it's a bit sort of, you know, naff? And he said, no, no, it's just edible love. And I went, yeah, you're absolutely right. And it's also a very Chinese thing because the Chinese culturally aren't very tactile, right? We don't kiss no. and hug very much. I think my family probably the exception because my father kisses and hugs everybody. Um, <laughs> So, you know, food is your language of love. You know, how you prepare a food you know, a meal for somebody and and the cuts of meat that you might put on somebody's plate because they are more prized than others and, you know. It seems to me you've got this beautiful story. You know, a lot of time a restaurant or any business is the story that you can tell. Do you know what I mean? In terms of how you ended up here. It seems you're in a good place, aren't you, to maybe keep that thing going and, and open Poons London again? Is that what your dad's restaurant was called? No, it was just called Poons. It was called... Poons and Co., the first one, and then... In Covent Garden. No, the very first one was in Lyle Street. Oh. So that's where they were just cooking you know, down real, the back real food. Of Leicester Square. Yeah, it's ah. near, near Seawoo Supermarket. Oh, yeah, the classic road. There's loads on there. Yeah. One edge of Chinatown. Yeah, exactly. And so that's where they started out, and that's where they met their business partners, who then took them on to Covent Garden. Certainly, you know, my f- father's generation, you know, you, you come to the UK as an immigrant... You know, and it's always been keep your head down, don't make too much noise, don't draw attention to yourself and just sort of... Yeah, yeah, first generation immigrant. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Work, work your ass off. And, exactly, you know. don't complain. And Why did he leave Hong Kong? 
It was very sweet. Um, he came in hot pursuit of my mother. Oh, oh that your, is mo- very your sweet. mother's English, is she? No, no. So, so they met in Hong Kong, and they were sort of you know high school sweethearts. My mother was a bit; she was wise beyond her years. And my father comes from a very large family, and she's an only child. She has a half brother, and um, and she said, "No, I don't want to marry into this family. It's far too complicated, and there are far too many of them." And so she had an opportunity to go abroad, um, either to the states or to to England, and she had notions of. of you know, drinking tea and being Austin-esque. So she chose to come here. And I think she was working at Woolworths as, as sort of doing some part-time work and she got a telegram. And in those days, you've got a telegram, it was because somebody died, right? Yeah. Yeah, it was a big deal. Big deal. So her landlady obviously called her at work and her boss had said, oh, you have a telegram, you must go home immediately. And she got home, it was a telegram from my father. Oh, um, so sweet. But he couldn't Aww. afford to write the whole message. So it was like, darling, I'm a... And that was it. Serious? Yeah. So they get like some advice when they hand it in. Oh, I'm going to have to cut it off there, mate. Yeah. And um, you and shouldn't have started with darling. Darling. Yeah, <laughs> too, that's too many long. letters. Surely you could get for a single letter. Maybe that would seem. Dear would have been better anyway. You are my darling. You know? No, too many. Well, too anyway, many. No. Um, anyway, so then he he got on a boat ship. Yeah. And do you go back to Hong Kong regularly? I am a total tourist in Hong Kong. I, mean, I was born and brought up here. Yeah. The first time I went to Hong Kong, I think I was about 10. And that was when Kai Tak um, was you know, still the airport, you know, the crazy sort of one between in Cali and that come, you know, you, you land, and you oh, fly literally yeah, yeah, the plane turned. I, I used to go there when it, I've been there when yeah. it does that. Literally between tower blocks, you can see people's washing. Yeah, if oh you don't God. know, they, they, they used to, they, I mean, Hong Kong was, he's still is it's tiny. It wouldn't help my fear of flying, would no. it? Oh you my would God, it. they you take a it. jumbo 747, you have to have 15 years experience flying. Yeah. Then you go straight at this thing and then you turn and land. I mean, you, you, you go through two sort of tower blocks, you can see people cooking in their kitchens and they're sort of, you know, washing, wafting out the window and you land. And But I do remember, you know, and, and it was in the harbour, so it was sort of quite pongy. And saying to my father, oh my God, that smells, that smells, that smells, what is that, that smell? And my father said, that, my darling, is the smell of money. Oh, wow. Good answer. <laughs> Clever answer. Nice. Yeah, so I was 10 years old when I first went to Hong Kong. And, and as children, when we travelled, we'd try and visit Chinatowns around the world. Yeah. And Just, um, just for fun? Or? Just for fun, and just because my parents said, this is how Chinese people live around the world. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and I remember thinking, um, gosh, where's Chinatown? Oh, <laughs> that in whole Hong Kong. thing is Chinatown. Brilliant. Isn't it mad, Chinatown? I mean, it is a mad thing. There's no other nation that has a, you know, it's not British town anywhere. I mean, well, we've probably done our own version in places, but no one's that interested. It's because nobody wants to eat our food, Andy. But why, when did it start? How long is it? Was it thing that started in America and then sort of spread? And, and, and does a Chinatown... Is it just a collection of people who slowly buy up property in an area or do they go to the council? It was because certainly in the West, American West, Chinese people didn't have a lot of the same rights as as other immigrants. So they would put it, it's a ghetto. So they would all go in one place because was you it, know, they I mean, were being They've done well there. in London if it's a ghetto. They've got prime location well, there. Well, it wasn't know. always there, right? It used to be out in Limehouse. Did it really? And then it moved. I think it was in the 60s it moved. Um, I found an old article... And, and you, they don't, you know, prepare press like this anymore. And, and there was an, an interview that my mother gave with um, House and Garden in, I think it was 1977 or something. Well, it's just so cool. It's brilliant. Yeah. And, and she talks about the move from Limehouse to... Oh, I'd be fascinated how that happened because, again, back to the landlords, how did they get the property? Do they, you know, is it sort of, it's encouraged and allowed that, oh, we want to have a Chinatown, it's a good idea? Yeah, because when you think about the Chinese in, in the UK, in the sort of 19th century, your mm-hmm. mind immediately goes to kind of 
the East End and yeah, opium dens yeah. and yeah. stews of London and that kind of thing. And yeah. But you, you're you're one of those people who have the fascinating thing that you sort of you, you're you've grown up, you've lived here, and everything. But your your cultural heritage, you know, seems to be that you you know you you've got a parents who've come over, you know, lived in Hong Kong and built a business here. So it's a sort of I don't know. It's that it's that bridge between these two worlds that are now becoming so divided. Do you know what I mean? There's this sort of great change in the attitude now of their world towards China, which is you know, it's but that will pass. You know, once once you know people feel another need for it. Yeah. Do you think it? Do you think it will pass? Well, everything is rather selfish, though, isn't it? In politics, isn't it? I mean, you know, when you you strike trade deals with countries around the world, it's not it's not out of a sort of altruistic cultural interest, is it? So, so once you know we've run out of whatever we need from wherever we can't get it from, and, and China has an abundance of it, it's just like, oh, well, you know, we'd better go back there then, yeah, hadn't we? So, yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, just to end on this because I know it's like I always feel nervous talking about China. You feel like you're going to just like get in trouble even discussing it. But what do you think business attitude in this country should be to China? Do you, do you have an opinion you would share I on that? I don't have an opinion. I, I'm not a you know, I'm not qualified really to you know comment i mean my only very very small dealings we're, we're trying to get some stuff made in china at the moment yeah um it's part of our range and um the prices that came back were just shocking high really high yeah they've become high so do you speak mandarin at all or no? no i speak cantonese cantonese of course um and it's not you know i think they're really trying to lose the sort of made in china with cheap label is it something to do with the distance that it's got to come i think there's that i mean and certainly you know in this period of COVID, um, transport's been a huge yeah. problem. You know, just, there just haven't been planes. You know, there's been no transport back and forth. And the prices, prices have been really going expensive. up. The prices have been going up and up and up. And it's, it, they would say there will never be like the whole deflation that we all felt and the value of our goods that suddenly TVs, every, everything got so much cheaper over a period. There will never be another China to add to the economic system that did what it did for a while. And now, yeah, we're having inflation. And yeah, there will be other small countries that come along and have these sort of revolutions and you can get stuff done cheaply. But part of, I guess, what we're all trying to do is, level up anyway do yeah you know but you know, it begs the question you know why do we want thousands and thousands and thousands of cheap TVs in the first place so that was this week's episode of BWB Extra and we'll be back with a new episode next week until then it's goodbye goodbye